You're listening to Instructive's Insane Instruction Show. I am Ferry V. I create happy and safe users for over two decades. This is a listen and learn podcast to help your firm keep on the right side of the law by creating better information for use. What's more important than safety for your customers? I won't get into details, but one guy actually died recently because the information for use were completely inaccurate. Follow my show and this won't happen to you. How do you know you can trust what I say? I've worked in product development and compliance for a few decades and have built up three companies. I've been in several standardization committees. I'm invited to speak at many international conferences and my blog attracts over 10,000 visitors a month. None of this is as important as keeping your company and your users safe. By following my advice, hundreds of companies have stayed clear of the law. And not only will you comply, your users will also love using your product. They're happy, their partners are happy, and of course, I am happy for them. Hi there, and welcome to this podcast. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the principles of minimalism in technical communication. And our guest for today is Dr. Hans van der Meij, who is widely considered as the expert on the field of minimalism. Dr. Hans van der Meij is senior researcher and lecturer at the Faculty of Behavioral Management and Social Sciences of the University of Twente in the Netherlands. Hans has over 80 publications on ResearchNet and he is praised within the industry for his work. Hans can tell us everything about e-learning, instructional design, video, game-based learning and minimalism. Hans, welcome. Thank you. To start, Hans, how did you get involved in technical communication and specifically minimalism? I started my research in education where I was involved in studying how students study for themselves. After studying questioning, which is an important predictor of self-study, I became interested in uh, software instructions. And the first and major publication that I read about it was uh, Minimalist Principles from John Carroll. And that immediately took my interest and I never left it. Why did it take your interest? It disagreed with a lot of ideas that were prevalent at that time, which is you have to give lengthy explanations, you do not support errors because that is not the right behavior that you should support. And and Carol's work was carefully couched in observations and was actually looking into the fact that if you want to help people, You have to know what they want and what they need, and then you can help them. Okay, and what year did he um, conduct the research? Well, I'm not precisely sure, but I started my research in 1990 together with a PhD student from me at that time, Art Sonder. And what we did is uh, we didn't get the book yet from his first Nuremberg Funnel. So we, we started with the original manual, the first minimal manual that he produced, and we analyzed that with reverse engineering, and then we came up with our principles for minimalism. And after two years of work with it, we met, 
Carol and I, and we agreed largely on the principles. And so that's how we got to collaborate. So do I understand it correctly that you came up with the principles of minimalism? No. Jack had, uh, I think, uh, six or eight principles. But these were too vague for our perceptions, for our design. So we made them much more detailed. And making them more detailed also involved making more bigger trunks. So, so I think Jack dist distinguished six or eight major principles. We distinguish four. And within the four, we had sub-principles. So basically, it's a matter of arrangement. Right. And w what I understood is that John Carroll, he conducted his research within IBM. Is that correct? Yes, he worked with IBM, yes. So it's not only theory, it's, it's very well researched as well. Well, Jack did not do a lot of empirical studies with a lot of people. But he analyzed the people that he studied in a natural environment where they had natural interaction with the interface and with the support. And he, he conducted more of a qualitative study. And, and that was basically a very good starting point for designing theory, because you tend to start experimenting only when you have a theory. And Jack didn't have a theory, so he started with explorations to devise a theory. And our work actually elaborated on that and then could work with actually what we considered to be the general theory of minimalism to devise a number of experiments with more participants and so on and so forth. Okay. And well, we'll talk about the, those principles later. For how many years are you working on the principles of minimalism now? Well, we started in 1990. So that's about 29 years, 30 years now. And, and is minimalism the only topic that you're researching or did you research other fields as well related to instructional design, for example? Well, game-based learning, because that's also a self-instructional idea. And now uh, video instructions, but basically the core is always minimalism. So minimalism is also part of game-based learning and of uh, video instructions. Yeah, and the key to net of minimalism is that you support people in their actions. Right. So if you could give a description of minimalism in just one sentence, what would minimalism be? How would you describe minimalism? Use and user-centered approach. You're saying use and user-centered approach. What is the difference? Well, use is the approach that you can have and indicating what you give for people to support their task performances, to support their actions. And user-centeredness means that you have to understand your audience's needs, capacities, context, to adapt that use to their needs and perceptions and desires and so on and so forth. So what you typically see in the literature is, is that the propensities of the users are very hard to capture and sometimes are ignored in the use-centered approach. And minimalism always considers the user in combination with use. Can you consider it as a design philosophy? Yes. It is a design philosophy. Period. Okay. When you apply the principles of minimalism or when you apply minimalism, what would be the benefits of applying minimalism? Well, you get people on task much faster, much better, and with less uh, support intervening. In 
one of my publications, I say that the rule is one third. People take one third of the time needed to learn the things that they otherwise learn with other documentation. The documentation is one third smaller, less thick, and it's one third more effective than other documentation. And this applies to documentation, but also to uh, game-based learning and video instructions. No, this is this is purely from the minimalist perspective. In video-based instructions, it's it's very difficult to have comparison conditions like in the original software paper industry. That rule of one third doesn't apply there. Okay, and you already mentioned the uh, principles of minimalism. Can you tell us in short what those principles are? The four main ones are, first is you want to select a use-centered approach. People come to documentation because they want to perform a task with software. And obviously, the software industry tries to sell the software as intuitive interface for which you do not need support, but our research indicates that people always need support of some kind. And that's support to perform a task. So that's user-centeredness, which is the core first main idea of minimalism, main principle. The second principle is that when you teach a task for software, it has to have meaning for the person's work. So what you can see is some approaches teach software functionality and minimalism always asks people to teach people software functionality for their job. So for a teacher, you teach different things for Word than for a researcher because they have different needs for different functionalities of Word, which is what we call the task-orientedness of minimalism. That's the second principle. Okay, before we go to the third principle, you're mentioning software a few times. Do you mean that the principles of minimalism can only apply to software documentation? No, we use the principles also for, for training for uh, educational tasks in, in math and all other kinds of tasks. But the origin, the source is software training. Meaning that it's better or it has more effect when you apply it to software documentation or is the effect similar? There can be the same effects, but as a researcher, I always hedge myself. It has been studied extensively for software training, which is procedural skills training. And for conceptual skills training, you, you can apply minimalism, but you may have to put in some conceptual or more conceptual information than you would for software training. So, so there are modifications that you need to take into consideration when you're looking at a different domain. Okay. Can you tell uh, us what the third principle is? Oh, that's my, my favorite. Address error. So support people in handling error. That means you, you want to prevent error whenever possible, but you want to help people to manage error when they occur, meaning you have to support detection, you have to support correction, and these are the two minimal aspects of error management and probably you can support some problem diagnosis in that information which is which is one of the this special moments in minimalism where you give more than what people actually need do you have an example of that well if you have made a mistake with software the first thing you need to do is to detect that you have made a mistake 
or that the software did something wrong. For example, uh, if you don't see happening this, then you might have made a mistake. Yeah, if, if you want to present a, a word in bold and it appears in italics, you must infer that something went wrong. That is that you start correcting your mistake. So you, you press control Z to remove the, the, the move and then it's plain text again and then you select the bold icon and then it's in bold and then you're correct. That is detection and correction, right? Yeah. So the step in between is diagnosis. And the diagnosis says, well, I see that my word is presented in italics. Well, what did I do wrong? And then you look at the three signals in your word, the three icons on your word. Oh, I pressed italics, which is next to bold. So I may have made a mistake in just clicking it on just the wrong icon. And that's a diagnostic action. And that helps you understand that you can have different aspects of presenting words in Word like in bold, italics, strike through. And that's how you get from diagnosis, you get some feeling of how some software is organized in sections and within sections into separate parts and so on. And do I understand it correctly that this error recognition information and uh, error solving information is provided within the instructions, so not in a separate chapter, for example, a troubleshooting chapter? That's correct. That's how minimalism really distinguished itself, or that's like really a characteristic of minimalism. Yes, there are nowadays, even in, in general education, more approaches which take into consideration the fact that people do make mistakes, which <laughs> is not a novel insight. But it's an insight that people just don't want to get. And what we have always advocated in minimalism is that you give error information on the spot, meaning where it occurs. If it's later on the page, people will look for it, hopefully, on that page. But people typically don't look too much beyond pages or beyond sections. If you put in your error information at a separate section, it may still be useful, but not as useful as just-in-time presentation. So would you say that a troubleshooting chapter or section isn't necessary anymore when you provide? Oh, no, no, you don't hear me say that. I, I do think that's important because providing error information on the spot is very difficult and very time-consuming. So I do see value of separate sections, but then you have two key problems. One is that people need easy access to the error information, which is an important aspect of good indexing or frequently asked questions or whatever you call it. And the second is you have to explain very carefully the context within which the error may occur. That is what indexers call the ostension problem, which is if you say bold is wrong or italics is wrong, you need bold, then people don't understand that it's applicable to them or in their situation or not. While during a task execution, it's self-evident that something is wrong or right. And that is in a separate chapter, it's not. So you need to explain something more of the context of the problem so that people understand, oh yes, I'm in this situation, so this help is important for me. Is that clear? That's uh, totally clear, Hans. But I was thinking for a technical writer, it, it can be quite difficult to come up with all the kinds of errors that can occur when you go through a sequence of instructions. Well, that's the crux of the matter is that you have to address the most important ones and give support for that. 
and address the lesser important ones with more conceptual information though so that people have to self-rely and self-correct themselves. Can you explain the, the concept of conceptual information a bit further? Well, let, let's keep with the example of the, the word that you present in a particular format. If you understand words organization, you understand and you can see that in word, bold, italics, strike through, and there's one more, are organized in a section for changing the font of your text. So if you understand that you're addressing a problem with the font, people will immediately look at the right section and understand, okay, so now I need to understand which font I use. Clear. That's conceptual information. If you look at the organization of good software, you always see software, even with large sets of menu options, they're organized conceptually in a meaningful way and not alphabetically most of the time. So alphabetic organization is wonderful if you have no knowledge and conceptual is wonderful if you have conceptual knowledge. Yes. And this conceptual knowledge will bring you easily to where you want to be in an interface. Okay, makes sense. Anything else you want to add to this third principle or do you want to discuss the fourth principle? No, the third principle is the most underestimated and probably the most important one in the near future. If I'm looking at a lot of analysis that we're conducting on YouTube videos, you see a lot of popular videos addressing user errors. So I think this principle will become more and more important as it's being accepted that you make mistakes when you're working with software and there is help and help available in, in the form of video is probably the most effective help around nowadays. And do you mean because of the fact that there are so many YouTube videos discussing errors, this automatically means that there's too little uh, error support given in existing documentation, so people start making their own? We've conducted two inventory studies on the presence of error information in user support and the situation. And the main outcome from these inventories are that there is too little support for error handling, error management by the user. So this is one important reason why YouTube videos are so popular. But another reason is that people find it difficult to read when they're dealing with a problem. And YouTube videos are very easy to handle because they're visualized mainly. So, so you get actually better support easily more easily acceptable accessible and more visible those youtube videos are mostly an enhancement of the the written documentation a necessary complement if not sometimes the most important part that is omitted so what what would you suggest for technical writers how how would you integrate those YouTube videos, or uh, how would you integrate video with uh, written documentation? I would use the company website to produce a number of videos on prevalent problems. And another benefit of using video, as I understood, is that it's, it works more efficient and more effectively. Is that correct? Yes. Well, we've, we've conducted about 10 years of study on or maybe 15 years or study on paper documentation and after these this time i started to my first investigation on videos and i did a comparison study comparing paper versus video and 
even though we used the paper version that had been tested for 15 years and improved over that period, the first video that we created, and of course it was iterated num a number of times, was so much better that I never looked back and always from that period on looked only at improving instructional video. Okay, interesting. About the fourth uh, principle, Hans, if I remember it correctly, it has to do with uh, supporting various users. Yes, it concerns the, the, the problem of gaining easy access to your documentation. What do you mean with easy access to documentation? It's true for paper as well as for video and perhaps for video even more. The first obstacle to finding information is that you have to have the proper terms to find the proper video. That's the first obstacle to finding videos on your problem. And the second obstacle is within the video, you need to find the proper section. That's a, a typical issue that you have with video and with paper. You have to find the right place and in the right place, you have to find the right information. And that is something some people want to look at the video from start to finish some people want to jump in at the right moment where their issue is discussed are you talking about really lengthy videos now or th does this apply to to short videos as well for your short videos is just as applicable but as far as i know when you create a video instruction it's always best to create really short instruction videos that discuss one topic at a time so give a solution for only one user's uh, answer yeah but then what is the label that you give to that video because sometimes the label that you give to your video maybe a, a command from software is not the thing that people are looking for or maybe looking for the wrong way so so one of the key things that we do with improving access for video is have a table of contents so that people can see what, what the concept is about. And the first part of the video is always an explanation of the goal. And then people can decide quickly, oh, this is for me, this is what I'm looking for, or this is not what I'm looking for. Maybe some of the other lengthy or shorter videos are appropriate for my issue. Right, meaning that you start with some kind of a table of contents, uh, which also implies that one video can contain several sections or several subsections discussing more than one topic. Is that correct? That's correct. Ba basically, what we do in our research mainly is, is we have a chapter and the chapter has some subchapters and within subchapters you have subsections and that's the same with video. And this fourth principle mainly applies to video or can you best explain it by this example? We actually use the paper metaphor to better explain the problem for software with video training, but both are applicable. Okay. And what I read as well about the fourth principle is that I think it's called a heuristic belief or heuristic principle. The first principle or heuristic belief that you discuss on your website is that you have to be brief and you uh, shouldn't spell out everything. That applies to text. That applies to video as well. Well, basically, it's, it's something that people associate with minimalism. For me, and I, I'm sure for Carol too, it's a derivative property of selecting an approach that is use and user-centered. So brevity is the result from being used and user-centered. 
that absolutely makes sense. And, and let's make one sidestep because last May, the new A2079 standard for instructions for use was uh, published, or actually I have to say information for use. And I think one of the main advantages, or actually one of the main breakthroughs, in my opinion, is that minimalism is being mentioned in this uh, new standard. Are you aware of that? I've heard it and I've seen it. <laughs> You've seen it, right. I do have the standard here and, and there is a definition given for minimalism and I would like to, to read that out loud. It says minimalism is a principle that information for use includes critical information and the least amount of other information needed to be complete. That sounds, talking to you now, sounds like a really uh, maybe a bit like a too short or incomplete description. It's incomplete, it's vague, and it's not well informed. Can you explain that? Completeness is not an issue that is important. You don't see any principle that describes that you have to be complete. Actually, there is one sub-principle which says that you can be incomplete if you capitalize on user inferences. Now, obviously, don't go into the joke of writing incomplete instructions when people are flying a plane and they need a checklist to check whether they're doing correctly because that's a silly example. But incompleteness is a, a, an important characteristic of minimalism in that if you want to be complete, what does completeness mean? So it, does it mean that you have to say open word or does it mean that you have to say to open word, you must press with your finger the shift key? And so there is a distinction between what is complete and what your user already knows. And that's a distinction where you get into the user centeredness. You have to assume that users can do certain things in order to not repeat information that they already know. And that's something which covers completeness in a different way, looks at it as a use and user-centered approach. That sounds to me like really one of the difficulties a technical writer might face deciding what is absolutely necessary and what is, well, obsolete or less relevant, so to say. Isn't that why our job is a smart job? <laughs> That's correct, Hans, <laughs> for smart people. No. <laughs> You, you have to think carefully about whether you're addressing idiots or professionals. And typically we're writing for professionals, whether they're novices or experts in their fields. But you don't treat them as idiots. You treat them in their respect as to what knowledge you can assume that they have. And that's where you depart from. If you were asked to redefine this definition of minimalism, would you mention the user-centered and user-centered approach here, or how would you... I would mention the error management principle too, because that is something which is actually a principle that is counterintuitive for brevity, because if you add information about problems that people may not face, you're adding redundant or additional information that they might want to skip. But then there is the principle of easy access and error information in our documentation is always easily skipped. So you capitalize on what we call information mapping processing, which is all key information is presented in its own place, in its own way. And once people get the hang of how something is organized, as is in information mapping, people will quickly know where to find what information. 
and then error information is skipped easy and found easily when needed. Yes, I would like to quote another part in the A2079 standard about minimalism. And as far as I can see, the error recognition or the error support problem solving isn't discussed at all in the standard. So maybe we, we can emphasize that a bit more. So here's a piece of text from the A2079. A minimalism shall be applied. Minimalism is an approach to information for use that includes critical information and the least amount of other information needed to be complete. Critical information includes the safe use of the product, the security of the information created with the product or the privacy of the information created or stored with the product. What do you think of that? Well, in terms of privacy, the guideline is, is for a very broad audience and, and my research is more restricted to a particular set of software tasks, so I can't address that. But what I'm missing is the component of error information. You also want to safeguard, which is to prevent certain error, but you want to help people when they make a mistake. So that's something that I would add. By the way, research indicates that one third of the time on task of most people is spent on dealing with mistakes. So if you leave out that component, you're, you're missing one third of the time of, on task of people. Let's talk a bit more about video instructions because video is really a hot topic also in industry, of course. What I noticed there are more and more companies wanting video instructions as an enhancement of written documentation and to mention the a2079 standard one time more is what i think is an advantage or an improvement of, of the new standard is that where the, the former standard said that it's still mandatory actually to deliver a written manual with the product uh, the new standard says that it depends on your target audience. So it depends on the needs of your target audience, whether you decide to provide a written manual or to create, for example, a, a digital version of your documentation, like a video or an uh, online help environment. So uh, this makes it much more interesting to uh, rethink the user instructions for many companies, meaning that more and more companies are exploring the possibilities for creating video instructions. I did a bit of research. I read some of your papers. And in one of your papers, you're mentioning the term hyper video. Can you, can you tell me what hypervideo is? Basically, what you have on paper is when you are looking at a particular icon, like the uh, bold icon, and you don't know what it means. If your cursor hovers over it for a few seconds, it will pop up a glossary, meaning this, this icon presents a word in bold. In hypervideo, you have the same optionality. So you have one of the options of hypervideo, is that you can put in a link to a particular object on the video and people can look up the meaning of that link. So you have some explanatory information when you need it. That's the principle of just-in-time presentation again. 
I'm familiar with the term context-sensitive help. Is that something similar? That's quite similar. So that's another aspect of hypervideo, which is there is a clickable link to other information. And another aspect of hypervideo is that you might have a community of communicating people. So sometimes you have people who are connected to a community where they can look up the information like a frequently asked questions, but then constantly update it. So hypervideo has opportunities for uh, sticky notes, like a note that you make yourself with a video, like don't do this because you're missing something out. So you can insert your own links in your own video. So you create your own documentation, which is very helpful for troubleshooting. You can create information links that address certain background information, and you can have information in a hyper video that leads you to a community with which you can communicate. So actually it's like a help desk which is constantly available. Is there a way to design a hyper video? Hyper video requires different software and that software is becoming more and more common but understanding the use of hyper video is, is more difficult for the user and, and for the designer to design is also more complex. What you now see is application in uh, mobiles, which are tending towards more hyper video than video. And these are in the more advanced stages of developing user support, which is sensitive to the user's actions. So that's also an aspect of hyper video. If people click on a particular part of the video, they're directed to a different path of explanation. That's also an aspect of hyper video. Okay, thanks. When I hear you talking about hypervideo and all the other examples, principles, uh, theory you're giving, I desperately want to see some examples. Are there any like good websites where you can see examples of hypervideo, how to apply hypervideo or correct examples of hypervideo, some examples of the principles of minimalism, which brings it a bit more alive? I have a number of papers which describe the theories and the application and empirical research on video and on hyper video. Are those papers uh, freely accessible? Well, people can always mail me and then I can mail them one or a few of these papers. So, so that's not an issue. And some of them are open access. Right. And you maintain your own website where you write about minimalism or where you provide a lot of information about minimalism and the principles of minimalism. Well, that's that has been produced a number of years ago and I don't update it. I'm, I'm updating it with my publications, but not on a website. I have a LinkedIn site where I publish some of the videos that we produce. And uh, recently an article appeared and there we have included the videos that we were using in the study for people to study these videos and that's more becoming more common in education and in research also that people provide the source material so that you can see what's being done in the study with the materials present right so, so you're inviting people to connect with you through linkedin uh, yes or through email Great, thanks. And in the beginning, you mentioned uh, the Nuremberg Funnel by John Carroll, which is uh, quite a read. It's theoretical, it contains quite some pages. Are there any other good reads? That's the first book. The second book, Minimalism Beyond the Nuremberg Funnel, is actually the book that you should read for the two key chapters on principles and misapplication of the principles. So there are 
chapters two and three, if I'm correct, which are written by Jack and myself, which give a condensed view on minimalism. So th those two books will provide someone with enough information about minimalism? Yeah, just the second book will provide you with all the information that you need. Great. In combination with your papers or are your papers an enhancement of the principles? There's one thing that I've worked on for a number of years. That is an extension which is not in the book and which is called the four components model. And basically what it states is that if you look at a particular component of a manual or an instruction, then typically task instructions have four key components, which is goal information, information about prerequisites, information about action and software reactions and troubleshooting or error information. And these are four components that you see represented in task instructions for 95% of all task instructions. I've analyzed about 120 manuals to come up with this model. And that's a more detailed view for writing instructions about task instructions, which are a subpart of any minimalist or any software documentation. Additional information or in-depth information about this is given in your articles. Yes. Okay, great. What you mention as well in your articles, you talk a lot about interactivity and then uh, mainly when it comes to uh, video instructions, because with video instructions, you, you can make uh, the instructions much more interactive than you can do with written documentation. Yes. Can you tell how this works and how interactivity is a better way or can stimulate the use of a product? Well, there are two sides to the coin. One is a video can, if it's a regular video, you can look and sleep because the, the video will show you, will model you the actions and you can fall asleep and drink beer and get coffee and relax and whatever. And after, at the end of the video, you know nothing. Yes. In paper, when they say press X, if you don't do press X, nothing happens. So paper is in, in essence more activating than video. That's the interactivity principle against video. But what you can do in video is put in particular key moments where you have a pause so that people can think because you don't have always the need to perform an action to understand that this is the action that you need to perform. And interactivity in instructional video is best explained with hyper video. And I'm, I'm taking one example that I solved 10 years ago, which it was one of the first versions of a hyper video for the national telephone company. I was analyzing their documentation for them and they sent me documentation and it was for a modem. And I was looking at the video and the video posed the question, which modem do you have? Modem one or two? And I was waiting for the video to explain, but the video invited me to press the selection button for a key modem after which a new path for that modem appeared. And that's a key part of interactivity that you cannot achieve on paper and you cannot achieve in a regular linear video. And that's where interactivity comes in. If you have a lot of options, interactivity is wonderful because it leads you through a trajectory of selections that you make as a user to indicate this is my situation, this is my situation now, this is all, oh, and then you're getting to where your problem is. 
And that's where interactivity is, is a, a key feature that helps people understand that they're getting to their problem. It, it's like the menu options that you have for getting to a company where you have to select. Select one if you want to have that. Select two if you want to have, well, they're a pain in the neck, but if done well, they're very efficient in getting you to where you want to be. Is that the same kind of interactivity uh, that is involved in serious gaming? I think yes. Because you're doing a research after serious gaming as well? Yes. Is serious gaming something uh, that could be of importance to technical writers in the future? Well, I know some companies which teach people certain procedures through uh, serious games because it trains them particular physical activities that are necessary for the job. So for surgeons, training with games, shooting games is very effective because it trains their fine motoric skills. Is it more effective than video instructions? Oh yeah. If you if you need to train your physical skills and it's it's like what you need to manipulate your finger and thumb and your attitudes there and react quickly to then games are very effective. Right. Yeah, okay. So but but it serves a different purpose. So it, it's really uh, in this case, the example you mentioned, you would say serious gaming is being used for training physical skills. And you would say like video instructions uh, can be used for cognitive skills, for example. Yeah. Right. So you don't have to automate those activities. You just have to be able to perform them. And the, the physical actions needed to perform them are not complex. Okay. Complex, you need to practice. Yes. And we've discussed minimalism, the principles of minimalism. I think I already called it a breakthrough. The Maybe it, it's not defined correctly in the 8079 standard, but it is being mentioned in, in this new standard for user instructions, which is an international standard. So I think it's really a, a great breakthrough. Agree. Meaning that I think it will be widely adapted by the industry if, if it has not already been done over the last few years, but it, it will be um, much more widely adapted. And we've talked about video instructions. We've talked a little bit about a serious gaming. I think also when it comes to video instructions and serious gaming, there has been done a lot of research. How do you predict uh, the future? Do, do you think that from this re research that it will evolve uh, into commercial products? Or do you think that businesses will adapt the research that you and uh, your colleagues, other people worldwide uh, conducted? Well, what I hope is that people make better products for their users, meaning including support for their users. What I see on YouTube is that there are a lot of good video designers, but there are not very many very good video designs, if you look at it very closely. And what my wish and hope is that my research contributes to help people better help themselves. And you're not talking about video games here, but about serious games, so to say. Serious games, instructional video, instructional tutorials. And let's say that I'm a technical writer or I'm uh, an entrepreneur or 
a marketing manager and I would like to start implementing maybe the principles of minimalism. I think, hey, this might be really useful for my users. We need better documentation or maybe we need um, video instructions to, to improve the learning of a product or maybe a serious gaming an option. What would you recommend to start with? That they start out with what's the context and the proficiency of the user. So if your user can use uh, paper, video, mobile, what, what, what technology is available in the, in the particular place, and then just read some literature and, and try it out. You have to know if your user has access to the internet, for example, 24-7, or at the moment that he needs the information. That's one of the disadvantages of interactive video. You need probably the internet, but if it's canned, you don't need the internet. So you have to consider all these situations, whether or not it's useful or meaningful to have an application. Well, for instance, my students do a lot of work on building instructional video for cooking. Well, cooking instructions are, of course, interesting to make. But if you're concerned with getting your desk dirty, you're always considering that you don't do that with a PC. So maybe a mobile, maybe a leaflet. The, the context of use is probably one of the most important and most critical decisions to make first. It's like I was reminded of the book of James Hartley. He says the most important decision that you, you have to make when you're designing something on paper is the size of the paper. And that's true for, for whatever instructions you make is what is the key medium and place or room that you have available for instructing people. If you have a mobile, you do things differently than you when you have a PC or you have a piece of paper. Those are the most important starting points for your design. And then you can look at what you need to teach and what your audience can absorb or needs to absorb, and then you can mix the two. That's really, really useful information, uh, Hans. Yeah, I think we've discussed many, many, many things about minimalism, a video, a bit of serious gaming, topics that are hugely important within the field of technical communication and uh, I think uh, will become even more and more important. Uh, so Hans, thank you for this interview. This is really useful for all technical writers that want to apply the principles of um, minimalism and write better documentation. You're welcome. I would like to thank the thousands of listeners that follow my show and I'd like you to listen to this show next week and all weeks that will follow as well. What have you got to lose? You are on your way to create happier and safer users and I invite you to email me with your queries or just to say hi or maybe you want to be in the show. So continue listening or write that email right now or you won't be safe anymore. Only joking of course.